Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, and it is Friday the 17th of June, episode 687 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today is a Friday, so that means we're going to do your calls to 866-65-THINK. All you got to do, you want to be on a show like this, and it may take three to four weeks for your call to come up and be on the show, but sooner or later I will get to you. I've called a bunch of times. You may only get one or two of your multiple calls, but I'll pick at least one or two of them, try to spread it around. And uh, all you got to do is pick the phone up and mash those numbers, 866-65-THINK. Leave your message in two minutes or less. Be direct, be to the point, speak loudly and clearly, speak into the phone. Don't turn your head away from the phone like this as you're talking and then go back into the phone because it makes it really hard for me to make it easy for everybody to hear you. And I will try to get you on the air. If you have a lot of information to give me, ask me your question, then give me your background information. I promise you it will work better for you that way as well. Before we get into your calls and uh, start answering them as best I can, and there's some challenging ones today that I may not have full answers for, and that's why we're a community and that's why you guys come in and comment in the show notes and help out where I can't answer I can't answer every question I just can't do it I do the best I can with everything that comes in and I love it when you guys help me because then we learn together that's part of being a community no man could be a master of all things but I do try to be a jack of all trades pun intended before we do that though let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you make sure the show's here for you five days a week Monday through Friday Even like right now when I'm on vacation, uh, sponsors and their support are a big part of how I pay the bills and how I make things like this happen. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. I'll tell you all the time, make sure silver and gold and other precious metals and precious commodities are part of your storage. The other precious metal you need to make sure that is part of the commodities that you store is uh, copper-jacketed lead. I ask people sometimes, what good is your gun without ammo? And then they say, well, no good at all. It's not no good at all. You can sell it to somebody that has ammo, and maybe they'll shoot you with it if it's a really bad situation. Not that I'd really be that concerned about that, but it's a barter tool, and it's a club. But if you wanted a barter tool or a club, there are better things to do that with. If you want a gun to be useful, it has to have ammunition and a well-trained operator. Well, you can talk to some of our other folks about becoming a well-trained operator of that gun, but if you want it to go bang when you pull the trigger, you need lots of ammo stored up. And the best place I know to get that is from BulkAmmo.com. Great pricing, lightning-fast shipping, incredible customer service, BulkAmmo.com. It's where I get my large ammo purchases. It's where I recommend you get yours as well. Next up today, MERS-Radio.com. That's M-U-R-S, a dash, and then the word radio, a dot, and a com. Uh, MERS Radio is kind of an interesting thing. It kind of sits in this world in between things. You don't need a license to use it, at least the commercial, uh, consumer-grade stuff that comes off the shelf. There's higher wattage stuff you would actually need a license for, but stuff like you get from MERS Radio, you don't need a license for. It doesn't have the range of something like ham or citizen band radio even. It's you know kind of a one- to two-mile range. What makes it interesting is, you know those family frequency radios you get like at convenience, you know, like a sporting goods stores and all? 
the frequencies are different, and a lot, a lot, a lot of people use MERS because the range is limited. You have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Five frequencies, five sub-frequencies each. That's 25 frequencies you can kind of play around with and try to get into an obscure band where you have a little bit more expectation of privacy than you would with other things. But here's what's really cool about it. You blend security and communications into one. So I have motion detectors all over my property now. And if someone's trying to get in my shed or sneaking around my, my porch at night or messing around with my deer feeder or maybe there's just deer down there I want to know about, those motion detectors will send a signal across my base station or my handheld wherever I'm at on my property and tell me something's going on in sector one, two, three, or 4. And that's just awesome. So that way, if I'm down working on my deer feeder or I'm on the other end of the property or something, my wife can get a hold of me. I can get a hold of her. We're out in remote areas. Cell phones don't always work. It's instant communication. I've got that security blended in. Plus, bought them from Rob at MERSRadio.com. And guess what? He's an expert. Anything I've ever needed to do, if I ask him, he can tell me exactly what to do because he only carries a select, small selection of equipment. And that means I'm dealing with a pro every time I have a question. That's why I love dealing with Rob, and that's why I love Merch Radios. And that's why I think you should add them to your homestead as well. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, I am running a sale while I'm va on vacation. You can use the code word vacation first year for $35. Bucks. That will end next week when I get back, folks. So take advantage of it now. Uh, you can do that when you pay by mail with the form and write it on the form. You can do that when you sign up online. New accounts only. You can also use it if your account is expired for a renewal. I can't let you extend it if you have an existing account, not because I don't want to, but because there's a lot of logistics in that when I'm away. I just can't do it, so this one's for new customers only. Very, very last but not least, today is the last day that you can win a free AR-7 survival rifle from ready-made resources. If you have not entered the contest yet, why? You fill out a form, and then you might win an AR-7 survival rifle. That's the whole thing. Uh, tell your friends about it, too. If we get 2,500 entrants in that contest... I get a survival rifle, too. I'll do a great review for you guys on YouTube. And Robert from Ready Made Resources will then, in July, run another contest and give away an $850 Rock River AR-15 Upper. That's a big prize. We gotta hit this one to get to that one. All right, before we get, uh, with, uh, before we get, no, that's it. We're done with the housekeeping. Went a little bit long, 40 seconds over, but I am wrapped up now. Let's go ahead and take your first call again if you want to be on a show like this. The number you call, 866-65-THINK. Yeah, Jack, uh, a couple of afterthoughts on my other call. Uh, you know, my, my mother has the impression that the internet has nothing reliable or useful on it and that it's, it's all just crazies or whatever. Um, and I don't know how you can convince anyone that there's, there's, you can find anything, you know, good source of information off the internet. But the other thing is, is, people have told me sometimes before that China's this, you know, great economy or great country or number one. Or, and then I said, well, if it's such a great place, well, why aren't people moving there? I mean, you know, and obviously it's not a free country. And, uh, so, anyways, <clears throat> um, You know, and I guess that's a, you know a way I look at it. If, if the country is is really prosperous or whatever, you know, you'd want to move there. But it'd be nice if if the world had a lot of places that had less oppression, and you know, a lot of places that I'd, I'd like to spend more time. And I, uh, anyways, uh, thanks, bye. 
Oh, Survivor. That's Survivor for those that don't know from our form. Proud member of the Tinfoil Hat Brigade and a fairly logical member of the Tinfoil Hat Brigade. I'm certainly not picking on him at all. But first of all, on your mom. Your mom's right. There's a lot of fruit bad information on the internet. There's a lot of freakazoid nonsense and we're going to have one of those asked about in the very next call for a perfect example about that. So how do you get people to realize that there's valuable information on the internet who are older or maybe just not comfortable with it? You start Start out by giving them information that they're going to be willing to believe in the first place. So you bring them things from Fox News, from CBS, from ABC, whoever her news source is that she already gets news from on the TV and believes it because the TV tells her, start with there. Take that information and go and go deeper and deeper slowly over time. If you bring somebody that's completely asleep information that says the world is going to end tomorrow, they're going to think you're nuts because you probably are. And even if you bring them something that's really challenging to their current core beliefs, and that is always what they see, you're never going to reach them. And understand that your mom has a right to believe the way she wants to believe, and all you can do as a good son is expose her to some of the things that are going on. I also know that some of the stuff you think's going on isn't. All right, so you can start out, and not that everything that comes off Prison Planet is bad or wrong, because I think Alex Jones, 80% of the information he puts out is spot on. But you can start out by not bringing her information from there. You can start out by bringing her things that are a little bit easier to accept. And here's the thing about helping people accept reality. If you bring them things that are very, very mildly challenging to what they believe, they'll generally evaluate it. If they, t if they take the step to learn more about that and realize it is true, then it changes their paradigm and they're willing to look into other things. All right, And that's why I think people, even the people that are way out there in the fruit bat world, okay, even those people serve a real purpose because if they're digging around in the fruit bat world, they're going to find out a lot of things that some of us would never even look at and some of what they bring us ends up being absolutely true. And it's stuff that we need to know, and then it gets into mainstream, and then other people are willing to accept it. So there's a process there, and you can't ignore the process. Now, on China, interesting question. It's just you got it all wrong, man, because it's not about whether or not people want to go to China. China's a communist country. Uh, there's a lot of oppression in China. So there's not a lot of workers, you know, people like, you know, you and me, blue-collar workers, saying, man, there's a lot of opportunity in China for me. I want to get on over there. There's 1.7 billion people there. I don't have room. Um, but that's not how we judge whether or not they're number one in the world based on things like business. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes today to a thing that's on the CIA website. I actually put that out about a week ago on Facebook, right before I left. And again, this is from the Central Intelligence Agency, the World Factbook. And it's basically a list of nations and what their current net worth is. How much is a nation worth? Well, at the top of that list, and again, I'll put a link in today's show notes. Number one, China. Current account balance. And let me read what this is. This entry records a country's net trading goods and services, plus net earnings from rent, interest, profits, and dividends. The net transfer payments, such as pension funds and worker remittances, to and from the rest of the world during the period specified. And these figures are calculated on an exchange rate basis, i.e. not in purchasing power turns. So this is calculated in U.S. dollars relative to the rest of the world. And this is basically, if you hear what I just said, that is any business, it would be a business valuation. What's the business worth? And China's a current count balance, $272,500,000,000.
That's how much China's worth. 2010, by the way, is when this number's from. Japan is number two, far behind them. 166 billion, 500 million. Coming in number three, Germany, 162 million, 300 billion. Coming in number four, Russia, 68 billion, 850 million. Coming in number five, Norway, 60 billion, 230 million. Coming in number six, Saudi Arabia, 52 million, 30 billion. Coming in number seven, Switzerland, 49 billion, 350 million. You can see it goes down. So you might wonder when I'd get to the United States. Well, let me drop down to see who's in, you know, there's a hundred and, I think 191 countries in the world. Uh, let's drop down to number 100 and see who's, you know, ranking in the, in the, the you know, top 100. The top 100 countries in the world. Who's at number 100? Is it the United States? No, it's Niger in Africa, and they have a negative balance of 321 million. So is the United States higher or lower? Let's jump up to 75. 75 is uh, Sao Tome and Principe. I don't even know who that. That's that's number seventy four. Good. Uh, Central African Republic. They're number seventy five. Uh, they're seventy seven seventy uh, seven billion in the hole. Huh. Maybe we made it to number fifty. Who's at number fifty? The Ukraine. Huh, my folks. Uh, they have a positive balance. What do you know? Um, the Ukraine has a balance, a positive balance of six hundred and three billion dollars. They're they're doing okay. Um, so. Who's the first person to go to negative? Um, Guinea Basu, someplace in Africa, I would imagine, is, is, uh, six million dollars in the hole. That poor, poor bastards, man. Well, where is the United States? Let me use the control F find function and find, no, I don't have to. Just scroll to the very bottom. Yeah, we're number 191 on the list. Again, this is from the Central Intelligence Agency. Our current value as a country, based on this formula, which I've read to you, which is how you would evaluate any business's value, negative $561 trillion. $561 trillion in the hole. Who's closest to us? Um, Spain. There's 66 trillion in the hole. We're 500 trillion behind country number 190. Let me read to you um, who's at the bottom of this list, starting out with 170. And it gets worse as I go. Belarus, Colombia, the Czech Republic, Lebanon, Mexico, Morocco, Romania, Vietnam, Poland, South Africa, Greece, Portugal, India, Australia, Turkey, Canada, the United Kingdom, Brazil, France, Italy, Spain, and the United States. So when people are talking about how well China is doing, this is what they're talking about. Now, another thing about China. China is currently decided, you know what, we have 1.7 billion people. We need a place for them to go. Why don't we buy land in America and send millions of our Chinese people to America to live under Chinese law and under Chinese rules in their own little self-sustaining cities of about 50 square miles each and we'll do our manufacturing in America, save on the shipping, and have free trade zones right in the middle of America. Little islands of China in America. We'll just buy them and build them and the the American government and the American state governments will just welcome us with open arms. Does that sound insane? Let me read you a headline. China wants to construct a 50-square-mile self-sustaining city south of Boise, Idaho. Thanks to trillions of dollars that the Chinese have made flooding our shores with cheap products, China is now in a position of tremendous economic power. So what is China going to do with all that money? One thing they have decided to do is buy up pieces of the United States and set up special economic zones inside our country from which they can continue to extend their economic domination. One of these special economic zones would be just south of Boise, Idaho, 
Here's the important part. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. And the Idaho government is eager to give it to them. China National Machinery Industry Corporation, Cinemoc for short, plans to construct a technology zone south of Boise Airport, which would ultimately be up to 50 square miles in size. The Chinese Communist Party is the majority owner in Cinemoc, so 10,000 to 30,000-acre self-sustaining city that's being planned would essentially belong to the Chinese government. The planned self-sustaining city in Idaho would include manufacturing facilities, warehouse, retail centers, and large numbers of homes for Chinese workers. Basically, it would be a slice of communist China dropped right in the middle of the United States. <laughs> yeah, we're just giving away our we're just giving away our nation, folks. Why would we do this? I mean, this is insane. Also, you asked about people moving to China. Well, people like George Soros and Jim Jim Rogers and billionaires, the very very wealthy people are buying property in China, setting up operations in China. American corporations are moving to China. American billionaires and global billionaires are moving into China. Jim Rogers has his children learning Mandarin. This threat is real. We can't use the whole everybody wants to immigrate here argument to, to make that case. It's not about what the quality of life is like in China. It's about the success of the nation financially in the global market. And where we're headed is down. And we're already at the bottom from a valuation formula. But we're still living the high life because we live in an economy fueled by debt. The question is how long can that go on? So there you go. Um, don't mean to ruin everybody's Friday, but those are facts. Those are the truth. You can read these two stories from the show notes. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, my name is Jen from Versailles, Missouri, and I'm a member support brigade member. And my question is, I heard that the Gulf Stream has stopped, and I was wondering if it's a bunch of malarkey or not. Okay, thanks, and thanks for all the work that you do. I'm an avid listener of your podcast. Bye-bye. And the answer is, no, the Gulf Stream hasn't stopped. And this is an example that I was talking about in my last answer to Survivor. There is a lot of nonsense online. And they'll take people that are doctors of this or doctors of that. Sometimes they really are PhDs. But sometimes they get them from diploma mills or online universities that they just send a $500 check to and they send them a credential. It doesn't really matter. Here's the facts about the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is used for navigation. Ships put their ass right in the Gulf Stream and use it to save on fuel so they can get quicker across the Atlantic Ocean. If the Gulf Stream had stopped, they wouldn't be able to do that anymore, and it would be everywhere because every captain sailing along the Gulf Stream from our, our side over across to to uh, you know the, the, uh, where, it, where it goes up, up near England would go, hmm, yeah, we're going slower than we used to, but the Gulf Stream's not driving us along anymore. Uh, if that did happen, the consequences would be unbelievable, and you would already see those consequences occurring. We wouldn't have to wait for the worst winter in Russian history the way these people are forecasting. This is why, the only reason I put this on, and I'm not picking on the caller because I think she knows, right? I think she knows it's nonsense. It's to make an example for you that just because you read something doesn't mean that you can believe it. You need to look for fact behind it, and you need to ask yourself a question. If this is true, what evidence would there be that it's true? I just gave you a very easy one to do. 
If this were true, the captains that are sailing along the Gulf Stream right now that are using it to increase their speed of navigation and reduce their fuel consumption would know it in droves, and you wouldn't be able to keep that a secret. There's been all kinds of stupid shit that's come out. Folks, please start using your brains and think about it. I remember right after the Gulf oil spill with the, the rigs and all, there was going to be a giant explosion. because it was going to, If you lived in Florida or the Gulf Coast, you better get the hell out of there. The whole thing was going to blow up. I even had people emailing me. I was going on vacation at the same time last year, and, and they couldn't believe that I was going to Florida. They were saying that I was in danger. I got emails from some of you guys that said that I was in danger in Dallas, that this giant cloud of death was going to come out of the Gulf. It's nonsense. Okay? It's nonsense. Just like the Fukushima thing. If I were living in Tokyo, I'd be concerned. I'm not eating food out of the Sea of Japan right now, and I don't think you should either. But I'm not sitting over here in a containment suit eating potassium iodide, hiding a hole in the ground, and you shouldn't be either. You've got to use your brain, you've got to think, and you've got to be discerning. And when you get information from a source, you need to try to verify it from multiple sources. And if they're sourcing something, you need to track it back. That doesn't mean we won't screw up once in a while. I've posted things on Facebook that later turned out to not be not be quite the way they were when I posted them. But when I was posting them, they were coming from recognized sources that I should be able to depend on. And that means they screwed up, not me. So there you go. That's my thoughts on that. Let's go take another call. Hi, Jack. Jason from Pennsylvania here. Uh, calling about gardening. I've got a box garden I built last year, and I had moderate success with it, but my father-in-law kind of felt like it really didn't perform the way it should. Um, and this year, you know, I planted a bunch of broccoli and lettuce and stuff. This was quite a few weeks ago, and these were things that I had already started under grow lights, and they still kind of seem rather to the small side. Um, I'm just worried, as you mentioned, that a lot of the manure and whatnot now has herbicides. And do what? what what do I do at this point? Uh, how do I find out if I'm one of those ones that has a bad batch of manure that's retarding growth? How do I do I go and put some commercial fertilizer, Miracle Grow on it, just boost it? Um, just need some advice for a new gardener. Thanks, Jack. Well, the first thing we need to do is to determine if that's actually the problem, and then to realize that. In, in most ways, it will dissipate over time, and maybe we could do some things like get some stuff from a recognized source and take some of our soil out and, and use it as fill dirt somewhere where it's not as important and replace some of it and, and, and do some work at overturning it. But I have found that a lot of times people buy dirt, and I have a very good friend, new friend, it's also a listener that lives uh, near me here in Arkansas uh, that's going to be helping me with some excavating. I think dealing with the same problem right now. But I've found a lot of times people buy compost and uh, maybe they call super dirt where it's compost mixed in with the dirt manure and things like that and then they put it into their garden and they expect to get great results and maybe they don't and there's a lot of things that can be going on there but generally speaking one of the big ones is that the stuff wasn't fully composted when you put it down and it's not yet really making everything bioavailable. Now, I'm a little concerned more for you because you've been a year through this already. But a lot of times it's not maybe as rich as we thought it was. Or we've put, like if you've used manure, let's say you had kind of crappy topsoil and you incorporated manure. And maybe you incorporate 100 pounds of manure into a, an area that you think that you're really going to get a lot out of the manure from. Maybe it's not enough. Uh, maybe it, it, the manure itself is just not sufficient. Maybe there's other nutrients you need. So the first thing that I'm going to suggest that you do, and some people are not going to like this, and I don't care if you don't like it. You, this is going to give us an answer. I want you to go out and I want you to buy a jug 
a miracle grow, but not the the commercial stuff. I want you to not the commercial stuff, not the the traditional miracle grow, the blue stuff. I want you to buy the miracle grow organic liquid formula, okay? And I want you to get stupid with some of your plants. I want you to feed them every other day for two weeks, which is it is getting stupid level of feeding them. But what I'm going to tell you is, if it's a nutrient deficiency. If you're just the stuff's there but it's not bioavailable, what will happen is the plants that you're watering will start to take off. Your pepper plants that are kind of just kind of not doing it for you, their leaves are a little bit off color and they're not growing, all of a sudden they'll start to turn dark green, they'll put on new growth, and they'll start growing their ass off. And people will worry if you if you fertilize too much, you'll, you, you'll suppress your production. Well, if you've got a lackadaisical non-growing plant, you're not going to get any anyway. Fertilize the hell for about two weeks. Seven times in 14 days, uh, one cap full to a two-gallon watering can, saturate your plants. You can do the whole thing if you want to, or if you want to test it and make sure you're getting a result, you can do half, but I would do the whole thing that way. If everything picks up, then we know our problem is that what we have in the soil isn't so much suppressing but not providing enough, and now we need to further improve the soil. We might have compaction problems. It might be too dry. Um, we may not have certain micronutrients that we need to get in there. So if I was going to do, like, let's say a six-soil treatment here, and this would even be if there's some herbicidal action in here getting getting kind of along with it, uh, if I'm not going to do any removal, how would I do my best to improve that? First thing I'm going to do is, like I said, I'm going to go on kind of a nut job uh, liquid fertilizer treatment. It's short-term duration. It's going to verify for me that if I get the nutrient count, I'm going to get better results. From there, I'm going to get some compost from a known source, and I'm going to incorporate at least three inches of compost across the entire surface area. I can just lay that down on the top, or I can I can turn it in a little bit. I'm not going to turn it in deep. I want to keep it up toward the surface, and I'm going to mulch with a good quality uh, organic mulch of at least two to three inches deep around all my plants. I'm also going to maybe try to get in some micronutrients. So what I'll do is maybe I'll get a, a couple bags of green sand, and before I put my compost down, I'm going to sprinkle that like sugar all over the place, and I'm going to water that in. I'm going to compost on top of it, and then I'm going to sprinkle it like sugar. So it's just like take a handful of it and just sprinkle it all over. And what I'm going to do from that point on, maybe three or four times a year, I'm going to come out there, pull my mulch back if I've got mulch laying down, and I'm going to just sprinkle like sand, that green sand over for a couple seasons, and I'm going to start improving the micronutrients that are going on in there. I'm also going to have to ask myself, do I have, am I, do I have enough solar exposure? Uh, I did a video for my business podcast uh, last year where I had an amaranth plant that was like eight feet tall and had a, a stalk as big around as my forearm, and the plants that were three back in the in the bed um, that were in the same soil tree the same way were half the size. And what that showed is that the only variable there was the solar exposure. So make sure your solar exposure is right. You want to test the pH in your soil. If your soil is too alkali or too acidic and where you're at, you shouldn't have this problem. But you want to check the variable. What you brought in may have had something that's increased or decreased the pH. And then if that's the case, you need to amend the soil properly, uh, either to bring it to a more neutral from, from either side. Uh, you also need to look at what's doing well and what isn't. If everything's doing okay and your beans are suffering, then you, it's even, or beans and peas, I think it's a legume of suffering, but your tomatoes are okay, your peppers are okay, that's even more likely you have some traces of Roundup in there. But you also have to look at this. Is there not enough nutrient and there's not enough bacterial activity in that soil to fuel your legumes? So if your legumes aren't doing well, but they're growing, 
and you pull one out of the ground and the roots don't have little white nodules on them, that means they're not fixing nitrogen in the soil. That can be a consequence of something like a herbicide, a Roundup residue or something in there. But it can also just be that the rhizomial bacteria is not in that soil. And until it's there, you're not going to get any nitrogen-fixing action. Your legumes aren't going to do well. So by inoculating your legumes with rhizobacteria, which you can buy dirt cheap, uh, so maybe go out late in this time of the year, you can still do some you know, planting with some, some bush beans or something like that. Get some bush beans. Give them a little bit of that organic fertilizer. Uh, inoculate them and plant them. And if they do better than your other uh, legumes have done, uh, then you know that was more of the problem. So these are all things that you can do. If you have a serious contamination issue, the only thing you're going to be able to do is get that dirt out of there and get new dirt. Um, but I doubt that's the case. You can also check with your local extension, your agricultural extension, and see if they'll do testing for herbicidal residue. Uh, and if you do that, what you need to do is make sure you're taking a, a good cross-section sample of your soil. Get some from deep, get some from the surface, get from the sun the center, and send that off. And that might not be a bad idea anyway to get your, your local extension service and get a soil sample test done. So there you go. It's the best I can do for you on that without seeing your specific results and being there with you. But I think a lot of people are dealing with this. I think a lot of new gardeners, if you are not getting good growth results, get a good quality liquid fertilizer and over-fertilize your plants that are doing poorly for a couple weeks. If they pick up You've got a nutrient uptake problem, not a contamination problem. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Derek in the Dallas, Texas area. I have a quick question about apple trees. Um, my two favorite apples are pinata apples and jazz apples, and when I get the chance to get my own land, one of the first things I want to do is plant apple trees. Uh, but I read that you can't just simply uh, plant the seeds from a jazz or a pinata apple, and apparently they are licensed. Uh, you have to be a licensed grower to grow those trees. And um, and I read that if you even tried to plant those types of seeds, that it'll produce a lot of crab apples. But I've never got a good explanation as to why uh, those types of trees from those growers would produce crab apples mostly and the jazz or the pinata. And people recommended that uh, it's better to plant the Fuji or the Gala. But if you could... Um, Maybe just explain a little bit why that is, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Love the show. Uh, it's a pretty simple answer, and it's something you're going to be very familiar with from gardening. Um, if I take a hybrid pepper uh, that is a cross between YOLO and California Wonder, and I make the first cross, and I take the seed, so I have a California Wonder and a YOLO, and I manually cross-pollinate them, and I take the progeny, or the, the, the children of that, that breeding, and I take the seeds from it and I plant them, I'm going to get a, a, a hybrid of the two. And it's probably going to be a very positive result. Uh, I'll get attributes of both together. But if I take in the second, and that's the F1 generation, I go into the F2, or specifically F3, as I go down in the generations forward, so I plant those hybrid seeds next year, I get great peppers off of them, some kind of a combination. I take the seeds out of those, and I plant those, and what do I get? I get some plants that produce some good fruit. I get a lot of plants that are really just produce like these weird things, right? So it's not you're getting crab apples. It's not what you're going to get. A crab apple is a crab apple. What you're going to get is the result of planting the second generation of a hybrid strain of apple. Uh, the uh, the jazz apple and the uh, the uh, pinata apples are results of crosses. They're hybrids. And I remember, a hybrid's not evil. Um, for instance, the uh, the uh, pinata apple is a cross between gold, golden delicious. Uh, and Cox Orange Pippin, 
and Duchess of Oldenburg. So it's a three-way hybrid, and I don't know if they take two and then hybrid the third or whatever they do, but it's a hybrid. So if you plant the seeds from it, you're going to get the results of the seeds. So to 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 let's say I wanted to make permanent um, where I can use the seed of a, uh, a hybrid apple like this, it would be a very long process. It would take seven or eight generations, and that's that's one thing with peppers, but with apple trees, so I'd have to plant the seeds. And I'd have to get all these trees to grow. And by the way, I'm violating this licensing law because they have a license for this this particular variety, uh, which I don't I don't like that, but it, it's the, it is the law. And as they grew, eventually I'd have a tree that produced apples, and maybe one out of ten would produce a good fruit that would be the, the same in common. And I would take that one and I would plant its seeds. And if I did this for seven generations and took a couple hundred years of growing apple trees, I could eventually end up with this variety of apple with all its characteristics and a seed that would be reproducible. It's not very, uh, not very doable. So what do they do? They either create the seed, you know, they create the seed the first time. Once they have the seed created, all they're doing now is they take rootstock and they take the branch of one of these other trees and they graft it. So they're grafting to reproduce them now. And you could do the same thing, but you'd have to get pay the license fee or get license to do it or however the hell the owner of this intellectual property, which is a life form, which you know I feel about that, to do it legally, that's what you'd have to do. To do it because you just believe that you should have the right to do it, and if you wanted to take the risk, all you would need is to be able to prune uh, some of the branches in the right time of year for grafting uh, from an existing tree of either of these varieties, and then you could graft it to rootstock, and you could begin producing your own. I would simply say there's like thousands of varieties of apples out there. Uh, there's several hundred that are just amazing varieties of apples, and there's many heirloom varieties that that you know people don't even know about anymore. Um, there's just so many great ones out there. I would look to some of these other apples and realize that these things are being produced for commercial use. And generally speaking, when you're growing stuff at home, you're better off not producing things that are meant for commercial use. Commercially bred apples are bred to to ship and things like that. And you can do things that are even more um, taste-worthy, let's say, uh, with some of the older varieties. Uh, look at things like Oshman's Kernel, uh, Arkansas Black, uh, Golden Hornet. I mean, some of the there's just some amazing, amazing apple varieties out there that I'd recommend you look into. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Gordon calling to you from Maine. Uh, first time calling into the show. I uh, started listening to you about two months ago. I think the podcast is great. Uh, I'm currently living in survival mode on 70 acres in Maine with a stream running through it uh, that has rainbow trout and, or, you know, rookies and uh, salmon, even though I've never caught a salmon. Uh, my question is, what should I concentrate on first if I wanted to start a wilderness survival school on my property here? Things like, would I need a license? to do that uh, should I get insurance I'm not uh, certified in any, anything particular should I get something like a first aid you know certified in first aid or something along those lines thanks a lot uh, congratulations on the new move thanks Mike uh, you want to set up a survival school do you I mean the first thing I would honestly do is I'd reach out to some other people that are already doing it 
and you may get less of a competitive resistance if you talk to some people that are maybe uh, doing it out in Arizona or something like that, because they're just not going to see you as a, a competitor. In fact, you're going to be able to make a good case for, hey, you know, if I can get this off the ground, you do mostly desert survival or western U.S. survival, and I'm going to do this great northern woods survival, and we could actually kind of partner up and do some exchanging and cross-marketing and all, where if you talk to somebody that's down the road a piece 400, 500 miles, they might see you as more of a, a threat. They shouldn't, but they might. You know, I don't want, I don't want to help my competition get off the ground. But just ask, you know, how did you do it? Uh, what are your biggest challenges? What are your biggest legal hurdles and things like that to get a better feel for, is this what you really want to do in the first place? The next thing is if you're going to do it, um, I can't give you any advice on licensing or anything like that because I don't know your local laws. You need to get a good uh, business uh, attorney and not some good old boy uh, that's in, you know, your, your cousin or your uncle knows who's been an attorney forever and he does everybody's wills and stuff. You need to go get a good, professionally recognized business attorney. Um, if you're doing something like drawing up a little will for your family or something, it's okay to use the, you know, small time guy now. If you're going to go into business like this and you're going to take risk in this business, you need to get a good, uh, law firm. Someone maybe, you know, in one of the bigger, bigger cities or what have you up there and say, look, I'm considering this. I want to do this right. You know, what are the requirements? Because they'll tell you if you need a license or not. Now, there's no licensed survival trainer uh, credential. That doesn't exist. Or maybe somebody's created something that they're calling a, a certification, but there's no license to be a survival trainer. But there may very well be a business license that's required, and where you're at, there may not be. But you need to talk to a local attorney to make that determination. Because if you need one and you operate without one, most likely what the state will do or the city will do or whoever has that, that authority will do is they'll wait. They won't shut you down from day one. They'll let you build it up till you have assets and then they'll seize them. So you need to protect yourself out from that. Insurance, yes. You need a good top, again, not Uncle Bob's buddy who sells the insurance. A good top insurance firm, and you need to talk to them about the liabilities that you would incur. You need to talk to an attorney about putting together a waiver, and you need to put the, the guy, the attorney that's writing the waiver, and the and the the, ta the uh, insurance agent together as part of your business team, and you need to make sure that you ironclad, lock, solid, lock it down. If it ain't covered by the waiver, it is covered by insurance, and the best is going to be if it's covered by both. Uh, and if you do all that, you have the, the structure you need to start your school and start taking uh, students, and, and and to do it without you know risking going out of you know going out of business, meaning personal bankruptcy. You probably want to do business as a corporation in that model. Um, that doesn't provide the legal protection that all the people selling you books about incorporating say it does, but it does provide some. Uh, it also has some detriments. For instance, I've been sued as the owner of a corporation before in small claims court for 200 bucks, And pretty much I've had to settle out of court. Why? Because I can't represent my company. I have to send an attorney, if I'm a corporation, in some jurisdictions, like Frisco, Texas, if I'm sued in small claims court. In, in uh, whatever county, I don't remember what county that was there. It wasn't Denton, was it Colin? I don't know. But anyway, I got sued by this girl uh, for $220 because uh, she was an idiot. And she tried to do a design for a DVD that we were producing, and she did it backwards. And we ended up getting somebody else to do the design for us, and she said we copied her design because we used the same photograph she used in her design. 
even though I took the photograph. It was my personal property. I owned it. I had the rights to the photograph. More accurately, the company had the rights to the photograph. And all I would have had to do is go down to this judge and say, look, here it is. Here, I had everything I needed to win this case. My attorney said, give her $220. And I said, Jeff, what the hell's wrong with you? He goes, I have to do this for you, and I'm going to bill you more than $220 to go down there for one hour and win the case for you. He said, if you want to give me $800 to win a $200 case, I'll go do it for you. I'll slam dunk this person, but I'm advising you as your attorney not to give me the $800 to give her the $220 and make her go away. If I'd been an individual, I could have went. So these are, these are things you need to talk about and discuss. Right Now, a large lawsuit, you're going to need an attorney anyway. So that doesn't mean you don't do it because of this. But while you're small time, maybe you don't incorporate it first. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's a time to make these changes, and you need to talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. But this is the big thing. If you're going to do this, what are your qualifications? I mean, do you just know how to make a few deadfall traps and some friction fire? What are your qualifications to be an instructor? And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm saying that the way that's the first question your students are going to want to know. Why should I come to your school and learn about you? Two, what, what, is, your, what is your marketing going to be? How are you going to market yourself? Uh, these are things you have to ask. What kind of website are you going to put here? What kind of experience do you have with running a business? you got to get those questions answered. Now, that doesn't mean you just don't go do it. But that means you've got to be working on those questions all along the way. If you put together some crappy-ass website that people can't navigate their way around, and your story is, i got 80 acres in Maine, come up here and learn how to survive, and this is me making a fire, and that's your whole story, you're not going to do well. So you're going to have to establish yourself in the community. That's why the first step I'm saying is to reach out to other people that have done it. And uh, to look at, you know, and then I want you to ask yourself, is this really what you want to do? Do you want this to be a full-time business? Do you want it to be a part-time business? If it's going to be a part-time business and you're going to run maybe four four schools uh, a year, that might be something that can be a hobby, can make a little bit of money, help pay for the land, meet people, grow, expand, and maybe one day move into it. And that's one thing. If you want it to be a full-time business from the get-go, plan on losing money for two to three years because this is what's going to happen. And even if the business itself operates at a profit, you're going to be negative in your cash flow personally because it's not going to sustain you for the first few years. It's, it's just not going to happen because you're brand new fish out on the market and you've got to establish yourself. And any business is going to be, I don't care what you're going to go into, you're going to go a year or two where your needs are not going to be met by your business. You're going to have to, enough to have enough surplus to meet the needs of your business out of your own life. So that's the sacrifice. Is it, It's uh, absolutely worth it. And if it's your dream and it's what you believe and it's what you really want, and if no one can change your mind, then you are cut out to make it happen. But if that, those things aren't true, then this is never going to be anything but a hobby for you. So figure out the safest way from a legal liability way to treat it as a hobby business. There's nothing wrong with it. If you set up a hobby business and it makes ten to $15,000 a year for you, and you have your own full-time business, and you just you just do it that way, if that's what you want, fine. But if you want to go full tilt with it, you either have to shift into it transitionally that way, and here's the key. Every waking minute of your life that you're not working your job or working another business or doing whatever you do to provide the money, even in that part-time phase, if you ever want it to be full-time, you have to dedicate and devote to that business. Well, those are business rules. It doesn't really matter whether it's a survival school or not. But if you look at TSP, that's exactly what I did. Even when it was just done in the car, I wasn't doing interviews and I wasn't doing all this research and I didn't have 25,000 people a day downloading the show. There was 50 people listening to it in the beginning. It happened every day. There was a formula and I gave it all I had from the beginning. 
That's the success formula for business. You got to be passionate about what you do. Don't care, care what MJ DeMarco says about that. Uh, we just had the recent interview with. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, now why you're passionate can be up to you. So you could build a successful survival school and not really be passionate about the survival skill set. If you're employing someone else to do it, and you're just managing the operation. You're passionate about the business. That doesn't sound like what you're looking to do. So unless you really love this, find something else to do with the land. If you really love this, make it happen because it'll be worth it. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Irida from Chandler, Arizona. Love the show and learned a lot in the few months I have been listening. I have three questions for you. We recently bought an old RV and 40 acres of bare land in southern Arizona. We look upon it as the ultimate solution. It can be a bug out or retirement location. Our property has never been farmed, but that doesn't bother us, as we know the land in the area is quite lush. The neighboring farmers are living proof. We have electricity and a well and want to start improving the land by applying swales and hugel culture, or hugelkultur, as the Germans would say. That is all doable. Our only problem is that there are lots of uh, jackrabbits. Any idea how we can handle those? My second question is in regards to the people calling into your show or sending emails. From all the podcasts I have listened to, I have the impression that the amount of women participating are far and few between. Jack, do you have any idea why? And what can be done to get women more involved? The writing is on the wall, and it's quite clear to me, and I'm a woman. Keep up the good work. It is much appreciated. Thank you. Bye. Well, unless I missed it, you only got two questions there. One was, what do we do with jackrabbits? Well, number one, we're going we're gonna to do with jackrabbits is we're not going to suppress the natural predator population, so we're not going to kill things like coyotes and bobcats. And if we've killed all the coyotes and bobcats, and your surrounding farmers may have, that's probably a big part, not the because jackrabbits breed like rabbits, because that's what they are, um, but we're going to probably have a large jackrabbit population. Uh, but number two, if... Um, We have a large jackrabbit population, and we'd like to control that population. The answer is a 22 and headshots and making that part of what you eat. Now, jackrabbits, in spite of some bad press, are actually pretty good critters to eat. Now, you want to kind of harvest them in the colder parts of the year. It doesn't mean maybe you don't do some population control during the warmer parts of the year, but if you're going to harvest them for food, uh, you do your bulk of your harvest. And the old adage is, you know, you only harvest rabbits in uh, months that end in R. It doesn't have to be that way. They can be harvested at other times. The issues are teas, flick, uh, teas, no, fleas, ticks, and what are called warbles, which are a type of worm, uh, and some other uh, intestinal worms that are higher when the weather is warm. Um, you can always harvest uh, rabbits, look for this contamination, not use the ones that have it, uh, and leave them out there to feed the coyotes and the other predators, which may enhance your predator population. Now, does that mean that we don't ever shoot coyotes? Hell no, I love to hunt coyotes. But it doesn't mean that we try to wipe them out either. They have a place. If we're going to have livestock, then we have to, you know, then we, things get more complicated because uh, coyotes will predate on your livestock. So we need to look at a way to keep them away. Like, well, Great Pyrenees are probably the best dog in the world for that. So all these things have to come into balance. But the simple answer to jackrabbits is start killing some of them. 
And the other, the other answer is, are they really causing you a problem? I've been to places where people have gardens and the jackrabbits stay out of their gardens and pretty much eat the native stuff. So if you completely wipe out your entire acreage and turn it all into farmland and don't live native grasses and native clovers and native vetches and encourage that and use that as kind of pasture maybe for some of your livestock and and, for, and allow them a place to be, well, yeah, then they're going to come dine on that, that crispy lettuce in your garden. But... Uh, and I've never had a place where I've had to deal with jackrabbits, so I don't want to belittle that at all without a full understanding of it because I really don't have it. But I've been in places with huge cottontail populations. Um, our place in Pennsylvania, we had a, a couple acres there, and I mean, in the summertime, when you pulled the car into the driveway after you know at nighttime, it was like just rabbits going everywhere. Never had them in the garden, but the lawn was full of clover. Beautiful New Zealand uh, white blossom clover. And they had no real need to go in there. So as long as you don't destroy their habitat, they're not going to utilize yours to a full extent of what could be the problem. It's just like any other situation where we throw things out of balance with monoculture. So best I can do on that without knowing more specifics. Have you tried to plant anything? What do the other farmers around the area tell you about their problems with the jackrabbits? You know, uh, are they really a problem? Are they taking some? Are they ruining crops? You, you got to know more for that. Now, on the other question with females in, in the in TSP, first I want you to be encouraged. I want you to know that there are a hell of a lot more women listening to this show uh, that are part of this community than I ever believed was possible. I would say about half of the moderator staff on the forum are female. And they are the most passionate, most engaging, and most involved. There could be no better example than Sister Wolf. Uh, there could be no better example, better example of that than Two Blues Mama. I mean, there are a lot of women in this community. I also want you to take solace in this. There are a lot of people that I know personally from correspondence that you might hear the question come in by email from, you know, John or Bob or Tom, or you might hear the call-in come in from John or Bob or Tom, but that person is part of a couple, and they listen to the show together and discuss it with each other, and they discuss it even with the children and their family. So I want you to first be encouraged that there's more of it than you think there is. There's more than you see on the surface. When I look at the demographics uh, here, I think we get about 30% of the audience being female, which is... If you would have said, Jack, in the beginning, what do you think the female percentage of your audience would have been? I would have said about 10. So it's better than I, than I would think and better than you probably believe. But is it high enough? No, I don't believe that. I believe that we should be a cross-section of America. and We should have pretty much uh, the same proportions that are outliving at least... Uh, the lifestyle that are that are here. So if it's half women, there should be half women. And I also don't think we have enough minorities. I really don't. And I'm not doing this from some kind of governmental integration bullshit thing. But I just don't think that being self-sufficient, being independent, is a white male topic. I think it's a human topic. And I wish we had more people that were African American, that are Hispanic. Uh, I know we have some, and I, I hear from them, and I love when I do, but I wish we had more. If you look at the pictures from the Revolution is You video, there's no question that we are dominated by white folks. Um, but that's not by design, and I think it's because of the stigma and I think it's because of the media, and I think it's because of class warfare. And I wish that more of our audience would share the show with not just some people you know, but everybody you know. Because the reality is we're all in this together. All right, The days of a divided America should be behind us, and the only reason they're not is because the corporate interests and the government interests keep us divided. We should be united. You know what taught me? I come from a racist family, I'll admit that. My family brought me up with a racist attitude. They did. 
and I am not that person anymore. The biggest thing that did it for me was serving in the United States military. When I was serving along, people from Puerto Rico, people that were black, people that were Hispanic, uh, people that had different faiths, people that, you know, I grew up in a very Catholic family, and people that were Protestant, people that were, that were atheists for that matter. And we were all in the shit together, and everybody had everybody's back. All of the lies and crap that were handed down to me from my family just died away. It's impossible to believe that someone's inferior to you and, and, and be able at the same time to put your life into their hands. That's why I think it would be a better thing for all of us if more of our young people would serve in the military. I really do. I think that that lesson would get taught a lot better. And there, I'm not saying there's no problems there, and I'm not saying that we don't have crap like affirmative action screwing things up, because I think that's the worst thing in the world for minorities to have an affirmative action program. I, I, I think that's just nonsense. But I wish more women and more people of all stripes listen to the show. I know I get emails sometimes from people that are of the Muslim faith that listen to the show. I think that's awesome. Of course there should be Muslims listening to this show. Of course there should be Buddhists and Hindus and, and, and pagans and Christians and, and you know Christians that are Protestant, Christians that are Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox. I don't care what your faith, your creed, your color, your sex is. I don't give a damn about that. I care that you're a human being occupying this planet with me and that we all have to make do with what's here and that the thing that will equalize us all is to take away the systems of support. And when that happens, we either work together to fix it or we turn on each other. I know what the powers that be want the answer to that to be. That's not what I want. I want us all working together because that's the only way we're going to survive. And if we don't survive, what the hell is survivalism? Let's go ahead and take another call. That was a great one. Thank you. Well, hello again, Jack. This is Matt Bones from the forum calling for a second time with a challenge for any other PSP listener who might need a little motivation to kill their debt once and for all. Uh, December 21st, 2012 is supposed to be a day of great change. Now, a lot of people think this is going to be the Mayan apocalypse. Um, well, not for my family. For us, that day has been designated as a debt-free day in our household. Uh, it'll be a day of great change for sure. And I'll be set to take advantage of all the post-Mayan apocalypse sales from all those people who thought the world was going to end, and now they want to dump their preparedness gear. Um, I challenge your other listeners that uh, we ought to co-opt that date and make it our own form of uh, Independence Day, whether it's moving to the homestead or getting out of debt or whatever big preparedness goal you have. It would be a way to stay focused amid all the BS hype that the rest of the world is bound to get caught up in as that day approaches. Just a thought, and I'd be interested in yours, Jack. Thanks again for the show, and keep up the great work. I think I mentioned that one like two call-in shows ago, and I found it. And uh, I think that's awesome. And I don't think it has to be debt. I think, it, like, like, like Matt says, it can be anything you want. December 21st, 2012 is supposed to be the day the world ends, according to the whack jobs and the nuts. According to the actual Mayan prophecy, it's supposed to be a day that represents the beginning of a grand transformation. I think that we can make it a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we can create grand transformation in my, our own lives. I think that's what the Survival Podcast is about anyway, is creating transformation in your own life first, so that if you want the world to change for the better, you can be an example of what that change looks like, instead of telling other people what they should do while you continue to live your life as you always have. And, and just assume that whatever line you've drawn, as long as you don't cross it, you're good enough and everybody on the other side's wrong. 
to actually put into practice the principles that are in our hearts as human beings. And I think this is a great way to, to make that more concrete. So I think it's a great thing, and I think what we should do is I think we should all, and maybe we should start a forum thread, my December 21st, 2012 transformation. Maybe somebody can put that on the, on the forum for me, send me the link, and I'll try to get it into the show notes here. Uh, my 2012 transformation goal. And everybody can say this is what I'm doing, and it should be something big. And it should be something that if you can get it done in two months, don't make it your goal. Make it something that's going to take another year and a half to get done. And let's see how many of us can turn that into a day of transformation. I think that is so freaking awesome. Thank you for making that call, and I'm so glad I found it. I don't know what happened to it a couple weeks ago, but I started digging, and I dug that one up, and I, do, I wanted to share it with you. I'll tell you what. I'll make the forum post. What I'll, I'll set it up, and I'll take care of it. I'll do it from vacation because uh, I'm recording this like a week and a half in advance of when it's actually going to air. Uh, but that will be in today's show notes. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Kyle calling you from Olympia, Washington. I had a question for you about mercury levels in fish that are raised in an aquaculture system. Uh, it seems to me like there wouldn't be much opportunity for mercury to uh, enter the system and therefore bioaccumulate in the fish that are, are raised in an aquaculture. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on whether or not aquaculture-raised fish would be safe to eat more than once a week. I know that's your general recommendation, but I just wanted to know whether or not you thought aquaculture might be safe to consume more often. Thanks for the show, and I appreciate everything you do. Bye. Well, the answer is uh, yes and no. Um, hey, first, we have to look at everything involved. What, what are we feeding the fish, and what's the source of that? And is, is there any level of mercury contamination in that? If we're growing our own, we're doing an aquaponic system, and we're growing within the aquaponic system some of our own um, duckweed, and we're feeding that to tilapia. We have a very low bioaccumulation risk to begin with. Uh, we have very low potential contaminant on the in intake in the first place. Uh, if we're also doing black soldier fly larvae, we're doing a lot of our own food creation, um, we're, we're going to have very low incidence of mercury. And if we're using farmed uh, fish, farm, you know, standard fish farming food as a supplement, we would hope that you know we'd have low levels of any kind of mercury contamination, if at all, there. Though some of it is definitely possible. We also have to look at though what is the source of our water, and is our is our water ha have a source of mercury? Realize rainwater has mercury in it because coal plants produce ass loads of mercury and send it up into our atmosphere, and it comes down in rain. That's that's where most of this stuff comes from in the first place: coal mining and coal burning. That's where our mercury comes from. The people that think, because I, I don't believe in man-caused global uh, global warming, I'm a climate change denier and just as bad as a Holocaust denier and all that other stupid nonsense. They're like zombie idiots, you know. Climate change denier. That's all they. That's all I can say. Right wing idiots. Right? The pollution's real. It's sulfur dioxide into our groundwater. It's mercury in our groundwater. So that's where this stuff comes from. So if we're using rain catch, you know, or if we're using groundwater from a well, uh, we, we probably want to have our water tested. Uh, for mercury uh, levels and and determine whether or not it's safe for us to be using anyway. But it's still there. But uh, obviously there's certain areas uh, that are out there that have warnings for mercury. Uh, some areas around here have warnings and some areas don't, for instance. And those areas are natural mercury levels or mercury accumulation due to contamination is higher. And those are areas we really need to do that one, uh, one meal a week limit. I think if you're doing aquaponics, you can probably safely do far more than, than one a week, uh, one one meal a week type of situation. So I think there's a lot of advantages there. And I think it also 
also is about species and what they're eating and what they're being fed. So even when we're eating fish from the wild, if we're eating things like uh, bluegills, which live uh, a lot on uh, crustaceans and uh, insects and things like that, uh, they're going to have less bioaccumulation than uh, largemouth bass, which not only lives on some of the same things the bluegill eats, like minnows and whatnot, but actually eats the bluegill and, and takes the, the accumulation higher in their systems. I have to be honest, it's not something I sit around worrying about all the time, but I seldom eat more than one meal of fish a week anyway. There's a lot of great stuff out there, uh, and fish once a week is is plenty for me, and I probably honestly eat fish about three times a month. And I think now that I'm going to be here and fishing uh, like I used to in, in Texas, I, I might move that up to once a week again. But um, as I build an aquaponics system, uh, I would think that if there is any contamination in that fish, Any other food from any other source is that's a commercial source is going to be higher in some other type of contamination. So I'm not going to sweat it too much. I don't think you should either. Let's go ahead and take another call. How you doing, Jack? Uh, this is Steve from New Jersey, and I just want to provide uh, my money-saving tip, you know, for low-cost firearms training. I've been a member of IDPA for about five years. IDPA is um, it's, it's International Defensive Pistol Association. Um, there's a lot of local ranges across the country that host these IDPA matches. Some are during the week. Most of the matches are on the weekends. IDPA costs 40 bucks for the year. You can visit IDPA.com and download their rule book. It's free and it's easy to understand the rules. You know, and when you go to a local match, it costs anywhere between five and 20 bucks. I mean, it's no more than $20. And all the matches are scenario-based. If you want to see what the matches look like, you can just go to YouTube, search for IDP, IDPA, and there's plenty and there's hundreds of videos. You know, while I participate in IDPA, I learn how to shoot from a sitting position, kneeling positions, prone. I shoot on the move. I learn how to shoot from behind cover. I've learned how to properly, you know, hold the gun to manage my recoil. I've learned how to properly hold the gun while using a flashlight. Um, there are some ranges around, no indoor ranges that will host an IDPA match, uh, either as a low light or no light, so you can actually get the good practice you would need, um, you know, using your gun in that type of situation. Um, so, anyway, the main point I'm trying to make is instead of dropping a few hundred dollars on a two- or three-day basic training course, spread that money, in, you know, over the course of a year and participate in some IDPA matches. You know, once... Uh, You know, a novice is used to having uh, muzzle awareness or their fingers always off the trigger. They can control the recoil, you know, along with all the other important basic stuff you need to know. Then maybe you might think about investing money in a higher-level training. Anyway, that's my tip, Jack. Um, by the way, it feels really good to participate. I don't know how much money is going to save you. Honestly, uh, you start competing and you start you know, upping your gear and you shoot more and you use more ammo and things like that. But I think it's a great training outlet, and I think it's probably a great way to meet some uh, awesome people. I think the bigger your personal network is, the better. And the more training you have, the better. Uh, the more you get out and shoot, the better. And the more like-minded people you're around, the better. So I think it's a great thing. I don't know that I'll be signing up tomorrow or anything like that. I got an awful lot going on in my life right now. Um, I, I really don't need more stuff, but uh, I think it's probably a great, uh, great experience. If you are a member of IDPA 
and you'd like to talk about what it's done for you, consider going to uh, today today's episode again, 687. Uh, check out the show notes and post there, um, you know, kind of your thoughts on IDPA, you know, what, it, what it's done for you. And uh, I can't say too much else because I've never shot in an IDPA competition or really been part of the organization. So I'll take the caller at his word and recommend it if uh, you'd like to get some more shooting done and spend more time with people that do shooting to check it out. And some of you guys that are new shooters, this may be a great way to find that mentor uh, inside a structured system with safety protocols and, and clear-cut objectives and things like that. So some of you that have emailed me and say, how do I go out and find someone to be kind of my firearms mentor? An organization like IDPA may be the way to go. And you will probably find that if you get around enough people that shoot guns, even if they're out shooting, you know, tactical uh, 45s or something like that, a large portion of them are also going to be hunters that know about center fire rifles and 22 rifles and shotguns, and maybe it's also a good way to find some people in your area. If you want to get into hunting and you're looking for how do I form that relationship and that connection with somebody that can kind of be my mentor and my guide into that sport, it might be a good entry way to find that as well. So great call. Thank you. we got one more today. I want you to listen to this one. I want to end your Friday on a great note. I want this audience to be proud of itself and what it's done and what it means and what it's represents and how we've actually created the type of change I've talked about. Uh, you're about to hear from a guy that was a former guest on the show. His name is Brandon Shelton. He's the founder of Bella Ministries. He's been doing relief work in Haiti ever since the earthquake, uh, right up till very recently. And I think right now or very recently, he was also in Joplin doing some relief work there. Uh, I cannot endorse his charity highly enough. Again, Bella Ministries, I'll put a link to that in today's show notes. Um, please check that out. I think you'll find that... Uh, that it's really worth supporting. And I want to, I want you to hear versus what the Red Cross did with like $130 million and we can't find much of anything that they've done in Haiti. What, uh, what this group did, uh, by supporting Bella Ministries and what Bella Ministries did with, uh, a really, when you look at the whole size of the disaster, uh, a fairly small amount of money, but something that meant an incredible, a lot, a credible amount, uh, to some people that really needed help. Hey, Jack and TSP audience, this is Brandon Shelton from Bella Medical Ministries. Um, so y'all might remember Jack had, uh, had us on about uh, Haiti a few months back. I just wanted to give out an update and say that you guys are in this unbelievable community here within the forum and the show itself, and Jack and Matt, just, just awesome. Uh, the, we had more support come in from this audience than I've gotten from monster mega churches with you know, tens of thousands of people in attendance. And uh, uh, TSP has actually put in a well the, the funding that we received from uh, from that show, the donations that came pouring in, for uh, the cost of putting in a well and the large point of the cost of putting in an inline filtration system, which has affected thousands of people in Bon Repo, Haiti, and made their lives uh, better when times are real tough. Um, just... Awesome, 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 awesome. I, I can't say enough uh, to everybody I meet about uh, this audience and, and about you, Jack. Just great job. And uh, we're off to Joplin, Missouri in the very near future here. And if you want to follow updates on our website at bellaministries.com, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a bad time. Times are tough at home, and it's, uh, it's, we're here to try to help out with that as well. It's not exactly our forte disaster medical relief, but uh, we're going to be out there pushing shovels and uh, handing out water and just helping wherever we can and wherever uh, uh, God puts us out. But just thanks again to the community, and thank you again, uh, Jack. And uh, as soon as we get back from there, I'll give you a shout and, uh, and let you know what we saw. Uh, God bless everybody here, and God bless you and your family, Jack. Have a good vacation. Bye. 
Well, first thing I want to say is getting that call is uh, it's emotional, it's heartfelt to me, and it's one of the proudest, proudest, proudest things that's ever come out of this show. I mean, it ranks up there with the uh, email that I got from a gentleman in Iraq that uh, uh, every day would download the show and sit around with 19 Iraqi citizens that shared and listened to the Survival Podcast and had one Iraqi that spoke English that was translating my, my show so that his fellow Iraqi citizens could uh, hear it. I mean, that, that, that's the, uh, that level of a thing to hear that from Brandon and to know that what we've done uh, has mattered. And what I've done has mattered. And more importantly, what this community has done has mattered and has actually saved lives. And I want you to think about something. This is a guy that's out there. And he has a full-time job. He's a paramedic. And he does this charity as a part-time thing because he cares and he wants to help people and he believes that's the right thing to do. And he's out talking to people in 10,000-person megachurches. And he's out asking for help everywhere. And when he comes to this place, we help him more than anyone else. And this goes right with the other caller that said, how do we reach more women? And, and my talk about reaching more people of different races and religions and creeds and things like that. Y you think Brandon is going to tell everybody he meets in his work about what we're doing here and about this community and about the need to be prepared, you think we have a champion there? And uh, let me ask you this. You think that the people that he talks to, that he helps directly, that hear about us, do you think we got a champion there? And do you think that if we reach the people who need us most and demonstrate that we're willing To not just say, well, we're going to survive and the rest of you can go screw. Because if that's your attitude, and I had a guy just threw off the Facebook fan page, said, I don't help the sheeple because the sheeple are stupid. And we were talking about helping the people in Joplin, Missouri, who didn't do any, I don't care how prepared you were, if your, your house is torn down in a tornado, it's gone. And if that, so if that's your attitude when you listen to the show, screw everybody else, I got mine, go somewhere else. Because that's not being part of a community. And that's what this show, and that's what this audience is. It's a community. And this is the type of thing we do. And if we want to reach more people, then we do more things like this. Because it's the right thing to do. And I always tell you that the most important thing that you can do in your walk in life is to remember what you are. A human being. And to act like a human being. And in the corporate world, that means getting off the freaking gerbil wheel. Gerbils running wheels. Human beings live lives. And be human. But when it comes to seeing other people in pain and other people in need and helping them, that's also a human thing to do. If it wasn't, this species would have been wiped off the face of the earth a long time ago. We cannot live as islands. And I'm very proud of this community. I'm very proud of this audience for helping out. If you'd like to continue to help out, I cannot endorse the work that Brandon's doing high enough. Again, there'll be a link to his website. But if not Brandon, then somebody. And start looking when you are giving and you're doing your giving and your charitable contributions. Look for the small organization of two or three people that actually get out in the field and do the damn work. Or go out there and do the work yourself. Volunteer with these organizations. These mega companies, and that's what they are, that are saying, we help everybody. Most of that money goes to pay salaries and do marketing and lobbying and other bullshit. Help the people on the ground and spread the message of preparedness by saying, because I was prepared, I'm now able to help you. That's how we reach more hearts and minds. And with that, be proud of yourself, community. Think about what we've done. Think about what we've done, not just in Haiti and not just in the other times that I've said, hey, let's step up and do something to help out here. Look at what we've done as a total, a total, a, a totality. Look how many people are part of this community. Look how many people now are growing their own food. Look how many people now are doing all these things. And look how even when I'm on vacation, 
we're still here together because it's that important to me because you're that important to me because we're all that important to each other. This movement will keep going. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not even about this community. It's about the humanity that's innate to all of us. You know, they put us to sleep for a long time. They really did. They put us to sleep with money, with plastic, with debt, and with stuff and shiny things. But we're waking up. And there's more of us every day. There's more of us here, and there's more of us in other communities that are saying, it's time to stand up and live like what we really are, human beings. And that means that we be prepared for the worst, and when the worst comes upon others, we help them out. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.